verses 1 to 14. So I'm going to read that. Uh, so here the, the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would be with us now by your Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to behold wondrous things from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as you may know, coming up in a few days is a, moment, a momentous anniversary. July 20th is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, right? It happened on July 20th, uh, 1969, where a uh, man landed on the moon for the first time. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin set foot on the, the Sea of Tranquility. It was a big event uh, to have uh, mankind reach something beyond Earth for the first time. And you've probably heard stories about the the effort that went into making that happen, right? So in 1961, President Kennedy vowed that by the end of the decade, we would uh, land on the moon. And so they poured all sorts of resources and manpower into making that happen. And there were all sorts of challenges that they, they had to uh, overcome, you know, escaping the Earth's gravity is the big one, but then also making the trip, uh, landing on the moon, getting off of the moon, rendezvousing with the capsule and making it safely back home. Plus, keeping the astronauts alive and healthy, you know, providing food and oxygen for them and, and so on. There were all sorts of challenges that, that had to be overcome. Uh, but there's one challenge that's somewhat lesser known, and it has to do with a region of space that's just outside, uh, just beyond Earth called the Van Allen Belts. The Van Allen Belts uh, start about 400 miles or so above the Earth's surface, and they extend several thousand miles into space. And they are a region of 
high-energy particles that have you know, been emitted by the sun or from beyond our solar system, and they get trapped in, the, uh, in Earth's magnetic field. So you've got this sort of cloud of highly charged energetic particles around the Earth. And they were worried about the Van Allen belts because, you know, sensitive electronics, as you would have on a spacecraft, can get disrupted by particles like that. And also, they can be damaging to the human body. You know, there's a reason why your, your doctor tells you to take antioxidants, right? Uh, you know why? It's because antioxidants neutralize free radicals, which are the same sort of rogue energetic particles that you would find in the Van Allen belts. Uh, and they can, you know, hit human tissue and, and, and uh, cause problems, make them go cancerous and things like that. So they were very worried about exposing human beings to the, the sorts of uh, high-energy particles that are found in the Van Allen belts. So that was something that they were trying to figure out, you know, how big is the danger and how do we deal with this problem? <clears throat> it was such a concern that at one point, James Van Allen, who gave his name to the Van Allen belts, proposed uh, detonating a nuclear warhead in the Van Allen belts to sort of clear out a path for the spacecraft to go through. He thought it would you know, dissipate the particles in that region. And so they considered that, but then they started doing high-altitude nuclear weapons tests, and they found out that detonating nuclear weapons up there only adds more particles and radiation to the Van Allen belt. So they scrapped that plan. Uh, so that was good. But uh, <clears throat> in the end, NASA said there's really not much we can do about this. The best that we can do is chart a path where they're kind of skirting around it, you know, going through like a, a narrow band of the Van Allen belts and... Um, and, and that'll minimize their exposure, uh, but we really just can't do that uh, too much. And besides, compared to all the other dangers associated with this mission, the particles in the Van Allen belts were probably the least of their worries. So it ended up okay. They made it there and back safely, and they didn't uh, suffer too many ill effects from uh, the Van Allen belts. But it was a big concern for a while. And what the NASA scientists were looking for was assurance that it would be okay. You know, they were, they were trying to figure out, okay, how big a danger is this? You know, how do we deal with it? They wanted to make sure that it was going to work out okay. And, you know, we kind of all do that sort of thing, especially when the stakes are really high. You know, if it's something that's not a big deal, okay, fine. But when we're talking about something really important, we really want assurance that it will be okay, Right? And um, it turns out that there is one area of life where the stakes are as high as you could possibly get, and yet we can have perfect assurance, and that is salvation and the Christian life. And today's passage is one of the best passages to turn to, I think, when we are looking for assurance. And the reason for that is that it tells us a lot about how God saves us. And it, and it helps us to really kind of answer three questions. And this is kind of what we're going to go through today, is answering these three questions. The first is, how am I a Christian? The second is, why am I a Christian? And the third is, how can I know that I am a Christian? And I'm going to give you the answers right now. So you don't even have to wonder, okay? So how am I a Christian? 
It's through union with Christ. Why am I a Christian? It is because of the, the work of the Trinity in salvation. And how can I know that I am a Christian? It is by trusting in the promises of God. And we're going to unpack those answers in a little bit. Uh, first, I want to take a few minutes to give you some background on the book of Ephesians, just so we know kind of where we are, what was happening, uh, you know, what was going on that, uh, when Paul wrote this letter. So Ephesians is one of the, the prison epistles, as they're called, because Paul wrote them while he was under house arrest in Rome. This is the imprisonment that's mentioned in Acts 28. And he was there from about 60 to 62 in the first century. And uh, he wrote also at this time Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the other prison epistles. We know that, the, that Ephesians was carried by a guy named Tychicus, who's mentioned in chapter 6. He also carried Colossians, and he was accompanied by Onesimus, who is uh, Philemon's runaway slave. So he gets mentioned in the book of Philemon. So these two guys probably carried all of these letters at the same time. And um, so we know that Paul uh, had been to Ephesus. He spent about two years there during his third missionary journey. He was probably there around 54 to 56. And so he's writing, you know, five or seven years later. And uh, he had great affection for the people of Ephesus. His stay there is mentioned in Acts 19. But then in Acts 20, he gives this very tearful, heartfelt speech to the Ephesian elders. So he had a great affection for the people there. We, we don't know what prompted the letter. A lot of Paul's letters had some sort of occasion, some problem that he was addressing. And Ephesians doesn't really have anything like that. He doesn't mention anything going on in the church that he had to address, unlike, say, Colossians, where there was some false teaching, and Galatians, where there was false teaching, and Corinthians, they had divisions within the church. Uh, nothing like that is, is mentioned in Ephesians. So we don't know uh, what prompted Paul to write this letter, uh, but here's one possibility. So we mentioned that uh, this was carried alongside Colossians. And if you've ever read Ephesians and Colossians, you'll see that there's a lot of overlap in terms of content. So one possibility is that uh, Paul wrote Colossians in response to the things that were going on there. And he realized, you know, Tychicus and Onesimus are going to be carrying this to Colossae. And they're probably going to have to go through Ephesus. And Paul had heard about how things were going in Ephesus. He mentions that later in chapter one. He's heard of their faith and they're doing well. And he, said, he probably said, you know, let me write another letter to, to deliver to Ephesus so I can give them some encouragement, say, you know, you're doing well, keep going on. So he kind of uh, expanded on some of the things that he wrote uh, to the Colossians. And he, and he wrote those things to uh, the Ephesians as well. So, you know, this is just a possibility, but it seems like a, a reasonable one. And it's, it's good to keep these things in mind as we read letters, just to know that, you know, we're, we're dealing with people who really existed in, in time and space. You know, the Ephesians, uh, they were, you know, they'd heard this message, they had placed their 
their faith in Christ. They were dealing with the, the same sorts of things that we're dealing with in the Christian life, you know, misunderstandings and persecutions from the world and, and difficulties in dealing with their own sin, you know, all that sort of thing. And, uh, and Paul wrote this encouragement to them so that they could, you know, press on in the Christian life. And so as we think about the sorts of things that they were going through and the encouragement that Paul gave to them, we can be encouraged as well. And it's neat to think also that one day we're going to meet these Ephesian believers in heaven, and we can hear about the sorts of things that they were going through and how God strengthened them in the midst of their travails. So I just find that interesting to think about. But uh, so it's mis- so like I said, Ephesians is missing the sort of occasion for Paul to, to write this letter, but it has some other typically Pauline things to it. It starts out by, by mentioning uh, the indicative, which is basically who we are in Christ. He talks about who we are first, and that takes uh, chapters one to three, and then he goes on to, to talk about the imperative, which is what we are to do, how we are supposed to live in light of who we are in Christ. And that's chapters four through six. And so in starting out talking about the, uh, the indicative of who we are in Christ, Paul begins with this, this long, flowy, uh, very sort of effulgent, descriptive passage in verses three through 14, where he, he talks about, uh, our blessings in Christ. And uh, in the original Greek, verses 3 to 14 is uh, our one long sentence. And uh, so we don't really write sentences that long, typically in, in uh, English. So your, your translations are going to break it up into, you know, somewhere around three to seven sentences around there, just to make it a little more uh, understandable, but it's it's interesting to imagine Paul writing this this one long sentence, uh, just kind of overflowing with excitement in what he's sharing with the Ephesian believers. So that's the introduction to Ephesians, uh, just a little bit uh, of orientation to the letter. So now we're going to get into uh, the passage and. Uh, uh, mostly verses 3 to 14. So like I said, the first question we're going we're gonna to answer is, how am I a Christian? And the answer is union with Christ. Now, you've probably heard that one of the key doctrines of Reformed theology or Calvinism is justification by faith alone, right? You've heard that. We are justified by faith alone. We are made right in God's eyes by faith, not by works, right? Uh, our works cannot earn us any right standing before God. It is only our faith and our trust in the work of Christ on our behalf. The way that this works is through imputation, which is a great big uh, theology word, but it's actually an accounting word. Uh, it means that... that um, our sin was transferred or counted to Christ on the cross so that he was counted as a sinner in our place and our sins were punished in him. And at the, at the, at the same time, uh, his righteousness is imputed or counted to us so that, that we are considered as perfectly righteous, as having lived a perfect life 
as having perfectly obeyed the law of God uh, as he did. This sort of tra- this double transfer, this double imputation places us in close connection with Christ. And faith is the mechanism that makes that happen. Faith unites us to Christ so that we are counted as righteous along with him. So that union with Christ then has tremendous benefits for us. And Paul goes through a lot of these in this passage. If you just read through it, you can see how many times Paul says in him or in Christ or through him, something like that. So in verse 3, God blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ. Verse 5, we are adopted through Christ. Verse 6, he has blessed us with his glorious grace in the Beloved who is Christ. Verse 7, we have redemption in Christ through his blood. Verse 9, he set forth his purpose to unite all things in Christ, and that includes us. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. And verse 13, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ. So, I mean, there's a lot here, uh, you know, So through Christ or in Christ, we are blessed, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are part of the plan to unite all things, we have an inheritance, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We we can often miss a lot of the, the benefits that are ours in Christ. You know, we think of redemption and forgiveness of sins, and those are mentioned, but there's so much more to it. And Paul is kind of piling up words as he tries to describe everything that is ours in Christ so that this one long sentence basically illustrates the, the, the overflowing blessings that are ours in Christ. Uh, you know, as he, as he tries to describe in what he call uh, verse three, he calls every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or God's lavishing the riches of his grace upon us in verse seven, verses seven and eight and the inheritance that is ours in verses uh, 11 and 14. So this one long sentence serves as an illustration of just how overflowing the blessings are that are ours in Christ. (coughs) Now, these blessings, like I said, they go beyond forgiveness of sins, as great as that is. Uh, These blessings actually belong uh, originally to Christ. They, uh, Christ earned these blessings by virtue of his perfectly obedient life and his perfectly keeping the law of God and obeying the will of God. And so he accrued these blessings. And yet, through our union with him by faith, they now become ours. So it is You know, our faith unites us to Christ, and it is through our union with Christ that we are able to receive all these blessings. So uh, that's the the sort of the short answer of how am I a Christian through union with Christ? So the next question is, uh, why am I a Christian? And the answer that we get from that, uh, for that, from this passage is because of the, uh, the, the work of the Trinity in salvation. Now, sometimes when you talk about the Trinity, depending on who you're talking to, uh, you might get some objections to, to that word. 
Some people say because uh, the, word, the word Trinity is not itself found in the Bible, we should not use that word to describe God. Have you, anybody ever heard that? Um, and it's true that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that the concept that it describes is not found in the Bible. And in fact, that concept is found in the Bible. The, uh, the idea that there is one God who is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and those three are co-equal. And, uh, they are all fully divine, and, and they are one God. And it's mysterious, but that is what the Bible tells us. And people who, who object to the use of the word Trinity, you know, they're sort of missing the places where, uh, you know, it's the only way to make sense of what's going on in the Bible. And I think this is one of those occasions, because in this passage, you can see each of the three members of the Trinity in action in salvation. Specifically, um, verses 3 to 6 tell us that the Father planned salvation. Verses 7 to 12 tell us that the Son accomplished salvation. And verses 13 to 14 tell us that the Spirit applies salvation. So let's take a closer look at each of these aspects. When we look at verses 3 to 6, we're looking at you know what, what the Father does. And uh, it starts out by telling us that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. But then we, we don't get very far before we run into uh, the concept of, of choosing or electing or predestin, uh, predestinating. So in verse 4, Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then verse 5 says he predestined us for adoption. And verse 11 says again that we are predestined. So here's the concept of election or predestination. This is a a controversial doctrine, a mysterious doctrine. But uh, basically what Paul is saying here is, you know, you want to answer the question, why am I a Christian? We've already, there's a couple of different answers you could give for this depending on you know, your perspective. But, and, and one we've already mentioned, it's because of faith. If you have faith in Christ, you trust in him for, you know, his finished work, uh, you, then, you know, you're a Christian. Well, then you, you try to back up a, a step from there. Why did I believe? Well, somebody preached the gospel to you and you um, accepted it as, a, you know, as true and as applicable to you and you placed your trust in Christ, or, you know, you were raised to believe that, and you'd always believed it, you know. Uh, So back up beyond that. Why did that happen? Basically, you can keep backing up until you get to the time before the foundation of the world, Paul says, where we were elected, we were chosen in Christ, meaning God had planned this from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, that there would be specific people whom Christ would save. And this is the plan of redemption. And so this is sort of the the ultimate reason why we are Christians, because God chose us in him. And like I said, this this is a controversial doctrine and a mysterious one. Uh, Christians sometimes downplay it or avoid it or deny it, ignore it. But what does Paul do? 
in this passage, when he thinks about God's choosing us in Christ, he glories in this doctrine. He exalts in it. He is, uh, he, he, he proclaims it boldly, without apology. He loved this doctrine because it is a testimony to God's grace. And when we behold God's grace, we see his glory and we glorify him. We see how worthy he is of praise, that he would choose us, undeserving sinners, to be with him and to be made holy and to receive these blessings through Christ. God saves not because he had to, but because he loves. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him. He chose us so that his glory would be displayed before us and so that he would have a people on whom he could lavish all of these blessings in Christ and show them his grace and his love. So that is the planning aspect of redemption or salvation. That God chose us in Christ before the, salva- uh, before the foundation of the world. Uh, and he... he He uh, planned out the end that we would be with him and that we would be glorified and also the means uh, by means of sending his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so the father plans salvation and the son executes that plan. The father sent his son to execute that plan. And in verses 7 to 12, we see what the son does in salvation. He carries it out. He is the one who came to earth to accomplish our redemption through his blood and obtained for us the forgiveness of our sins, as it says in verse 7. And, uh, you know, there, there are people sometimes, you know, I think I used to fall victim to this. There's this sort of insidious uh, tendency to create a sort of conflict or tension within the Trinity between the Father and Son, you know, because we're, we are so focused and, uh, and often rightly so on the work of the Son in accomplishing our redemption that we kind of forget about the other members of the Trinity. Uh, we know that Christ accomplished our salvation, and so we tend to, to focus on him and we think um, something like, you know, the Father was up there and just really angry and wanting to destroy sinners until at the last minute the Son steps in and says, you know, let me take their punishment and, you know, and, and that'll be okay. And, uh, and the Father sort of reluctantly agrees to it, but he's still up there and he's angry and he's just waiting for us to, to mess up so that he can squash us right? Um, This is a a dangerous belief, and it is not at all what Scripture teaches. When you look at a passage like this, um, you see that that the Father plans redemption out of love. He's the one who sent the Son. He was not a reluctant uh, forgiver, if you will. He did not reluctantly forgive he set his love on people and set his, lo- uh, his son to make it so that we could be reconciled to him. So when we think about Jesus as the good guy, 
uh, we're in danger of seeing the father as the bad guy. And that's really not what Scripture teaches. There is no conflict within the Trinity. Uh, Instead, we see in this passage that God the Father lavishes his riches upon us through the work of Christ, that he makes known to us the mystery of his will through the work of Christ, and that he planned from uh, before time to accomplish redemption by means of his son. So the father plans and the son carries it out. The rest of scripture testifies similarly that there is no conflict between the father and the son, that they are in fact united in their purpose of accomplishing redemption. In John 6:37, Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In John 17, 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And John three sixteen says of the Father, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, friends, there is no conflict within the Trinity. The Son perfectly accomplished our redemption, but he did so according to the plan of the Father, because the Father sent him. The Son, uh, excuse me, the Father loved us before we loved him, and he sent his Son so that we could be with him. But it doesn't end there. For verses 13 and 14 tell us about the Spirit's role in salvation. The Spirit is the seal of our redemption, the one who makes it official, the one who certifies that we are saved. He's the guarantee, the down payment, if you will. You know, when you buy a house, you have to put down money to show that you are serious about buying this house if, you're, you know, if your loan comes through or whatever it is. Um, the, the Spirit is, is like that. He is the first payment to say, I am serious about bringing you into glory. And we are promised this inheritance through Christ, where when we come into glory, we'll receive all of these blessings And the Spirit is the first taste of that. So that we we receive freedom from sin, we receive growth, we receive uh, all these spiritual blessings, fellowship, uh, a taste of heaven in the the word and the sacraments that we enjoy at worship every week. Uh, You know, it's, it's just a foretaste of what's to come. And it's mediated by the Spirit, the, the first payment on the inheritance that we are promised in heaven. So Paul goes through uh, the rest of the, the letter and he talks a bit about um, knowing that you have the Spirit in your life when you see him at work. And, uh, and that's how you can be certain that you are saved when you, when you see the Spirit at work in your life. And so he, cover, he covers that uh, some in the rest of this letter. And that kind of leads us into our final question after we've, we've answered uh, 
Uh, how, how am I a Christian and why am I a Christian? Uh, now we're going to answer, how can I know that I am a Christian? And the answer is by trusting in the promises of God. So how many of you have you ever thought, you know, I'm not really a Christian. I don't, I don't really believe this. If I did, I wouldn't keep doing this or that thing. Or, you know, this all sounds really fantastic in a sort of negative way. Uh, you know, how, how can this story possibly be true uh, about, you know, God becoming man and coming to earth and dying on our, on our behalf and so on? How, how can that possibly be true? I've, I've made it up. I've deluded myself. Well, <clears throat> a lot of times doubts like that come in simply because the Christian life is hard, right? You know, we face, we have enemies, especially when we come onto God's side, right? The world is opposed to God. And so the world is opposed to us. Uh, you know, the, the, the world will persecute us. It will mock us. It will tempt us. And, um, and when we become Christians, we are freed from the, the guilt and the penalty of sin, but not yet from the presence of sin. Uh, the old man, the, you know, our flesh still remains. And we deal with this remaining sin that we have to mortify, that we have to put to death by the, the help of the Spirit. And we will not be freed of that, the presence of sin until we come to, uh, into glory. And so the flesh is another enemy that we deal with. And finally, there is the devil and his demons. Uh, the devil hates our Lord and wants to destroy his people. And so he will oppose us with everything that he has in hopes of picking some of us off. So he'll tempt us. He will sow doubts in our hearts. Say, you don't really believe this. This isn't really true. There's no way that God can continue to accept you when you have messed up again. Well, friends, those things are not true. Those are lies. And this passage is helpful in dealing with those sorts of doubts because it reminds us of the promises of God to us. <clears throat> It helps us to remember that the, that the Father is not ultimately against us. He is for us. He has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that we would be with him. And he sent his son to accomplish that plan, absolutely and positively sure that that would be accomplished. He has united us to Christ through faith and counted us righteous in him. We didn't just get back to zero where now it's up to us to do things perfectly well from then on. No, we were counted as perfectly righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And he promises that he will accept the work of Christ on our behalf and the payment that, that for sin that Christ paid. He, he demands no other payment from us. And to make sure that we know that we are saved, he has sent his Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. So when we ponder these things, the love of God, the work of the Son, and the sealing of the Spirit, we can have true assurance that we are saved when we know and we understand and we, pro and we trust these promises. Now we can know all this and still waver. That'll happen. 
But when you waver, please come back. Remember these promises. Remember that that God has promised that he will bring you safely and securely into heaven. That he, he has promised that he has chosen you. That the work of Christ is sufficient to accomplish your redemption. And that the spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance. And the spirit will never desert you. We can trust in these promises because God has done what he says he has done and he will do what he says he will do. Basically, as Paul goes on to explain in the rest of Ephesians, salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. And for that reason, we can trust it. It is not based on our works. It is not based on our shifting emotions It is based on the bedrock assurances and promises of God that he has done it. And he has done it according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you.